0: The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment.
1: Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Neyman, your host. Today's guest, Temple Grandin, is one of the world's most accomplished and well known adults with autism. A professor of animal science at Colorado State University, she is the author of several best selling books and was the subject of the HBO movie based on her life, starring Claire Danes. She's here on Health Watch today to talk about her new book, The Autistic Brain Thinking Across the Spectrum, a cutting edge account of the latest science of autism. Welcome to Health Watch, Temple Grandin.
0: It's, it's great to be here.
1: So, at the beginning of the Autistic Brain Temple, you talk about how there's been a big shift in the conceptualization of autism from one that was primarily looked at as psychoanalytic and now is moving much more into biology. Can can you talk about that a little?
0: Well, you, know, you see, the autistic diagnoses of things like autism and ADHD, depression, anxiety, all of these different things. They are behavioral profiles. There's no lab tests, you know, to go in for these things. So basically, it's behavioral profiles. And over the last few decades, the American Psychiatric Association has, um, you know, changed the behavioral profiles as there was new knowledge. And and uh, we outline uh, how that has changed. In fact, um, autism's having some changes. They're going to take out Asperger's, which is the mild autism with no speech delay, and replace it with social communication disorder. Well. I think that has to do with trying to cut back services because it's still on the autism spectrum. You know, there's no black and white dividing line between socially awkward, geeky and nerdy and, and having autism. If you have a little bit of that autistic trait and give you an advantage, you know, half of because half of Silicon Valley probably has some autism and you wouldn't have any uh, radio stations to talk on if you didn't have um you know, people with um, at least a little bit of autism that were more interested in engineering than in in being social,
1: and there's been a, a lot of controversy over the definition of what autism is over the, over the decades. And you talk a little bit about how you were lucky to be born when you were in the various shifting time periods of of uh, the autism definition. Can you can you talk a little bit about well, your mother? I
0: was born ten years before things got really bad on blaming mothers for autism. That was the, really the Baddeley era. Fortunately my mother didn't get subjected to the absolute worst of that. And I got into very good early intervention through a referral from a neurologist. I didn't go to a psychiatrist when I was a little tiny kid, two and a half years old, and I had no speech. And I can't emphasize enough if you have a young two year old or three year old that's not talking, worst thing you can do is nothing. You have got to um get this kid into early intervention, and if you're somewhere where there's no services, you get some grandmothers, you get some students, you've got to work with this kid. you got to play games with him, teaching, turn-taking, saying words. You've got to interact with
1: and you So your mother was really ahead of her time in a sense.
0: Yes, she was, very, very definitely. I mean, autism is a very big spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, you've got famous artists. I think Van Gogh had a lot of autistic traits. you got Einstein, who had no speech until age three. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people that remain nonverbal that are extremely handicapped. So you've got this word, autism, that covers a very, very large spectrum. And um, I get very concerned about kids that are more like me um, sort of not getting their abilities developed. And, you know, people on the spectrum, and this is another chapter of the Autistic Brain book, tend to have uneven skills. Good at one thing, bad at something else. Like I was really super good at art. Another kid may be good at math but have problems with reading. Another kid's good at writing. We've got to build up on the thing that they're good at so they can turn it into a career.
1: That seems like a really intuitive approach, but a lot of times people actually do the opposite. They, they focus on shoring up the, uh, the deficiencies rather than focusing on the strengths. And well, you, get, you give a good example of one of your teachers who you really admired but also made this mistake.
0: Well, yeah, he bashed away on algebra when we should have gone to geometry and trig, because there's a lot of visual thinkers that can't do algebra, but they can do geometry and trig. Now, I'm not suggesting that we totally do nothing nothing for deficits. We have to do something. But, you know, we tend to just whack away at the deficits and not do anything to, to build up the strength. I've heard sad cases where a child uh, was doing badly in math, and so they took away uh, band practice so he could, he could do an extra period of math. Well, band practice is a thing the kid loved and made school worthwhile to him. You don't take away band practice.
1: And, and you talk a lot in the autistic brain also about the dangers of labels. And obviously this is a complex label, the label of autism, since, as you have mentioned, it, it really is an umbrella for a whole bunch of different scenarios and, and subtypes. Ta- tell us a little bit more about some of the dangers uh, you've seen when people uh, get a label like autism.
0: Well, you see, you get on a real mild end of the spectrum, you know, where I've seen kids a lot milder than me, kind of just smart, geeky, kind of socially awkward kids. Um, they sometimes sort of become the label. They don't get stretched enough. You know, when I was a young child, uh, you know, I had to have table manners. So I had to learn how to buy things in a store and talk to the clerks appropriately. You gotta stretch these kids. And, and that, but there's one thing we do have to make some accommodations for, and that's some of the sensory problems. There are some individuals that absolutely can't tolerate fluorescent lights. They can see the flicker. There's other individuals that have horrible problems with sound sensitivity. And sometimes that can be desensitized if the child initiates the sound. In the autistic brain, you've got a whole bunch of uh, tips on how to deal with um, with the sensory issues. And if there's one place where we need to have research, it's on sensory. Now, the thing is, sensory problems are very variable. You know, they range from being a nuisance to being very debilitating. You see, and I think there needs to be, you know, on sensory stuff, we need to be diagnosing specifically well, what is the child's problem. Does he have a problem with breath? If you have a problem with seeing the print jiggle on the page, a problem with loud noise, problems with touch sensitivity, I still can't stand scratchy clothes against my skin.
1: One of, One of the things that I found really fascinating in the book was the fact that scientists are really focused on observing behaviors of people who are autistic rather than uh, valuing and asking for the actual subject, subjective experience of people with autism. And it seems like that's the key to really solving some of these sensory issues is to get more self-reporting of people who are actually autistic.
0: Well, you see, and you, and when you have individuals that are nonverbal, and there are a few individuals that are nonverbal who can type totally independently, and the one is Tito Mukhopadhyay, and another one is Carly Fleischman. And, they, and they're and profiled in the book, The Autistic Brain. Um, they live in a totally sensory disordered world, you know, where their visual system is pixelating like a bad TV with a satellite dish is shaking, you know, satellite dishes shaking. Um, problems with um, uh, just all the, the hearing is cutting in and out like a really bad mobile phone. I, um, uh, that would, you know, I think those uh, writings of people like that are really important for understanding some of these sensory problems. Then you can start to figure out what brain systems may be involved.
1: And you you bring up the point in the book around how two very different behaviors might be coming from the same subjective experience. So someone who's very withdrawn and noncommunicative and someone who's very frenetic and and maybe hyperactive could both be uh, responding differently to the experience of overstimulation.
0: Well, yeah, you can have two ways you can respond to overstimulation. You know, you have certain individuals take them into a large busy supermarket and they're having a big meltdown, throwing a big fit, and because it's sensory overload, you can have other situations where they just shut down and they become totally non-responsive. But in both situations, it's sensory overload.
1: Which might give some cues to ways we could do interventions from a, medical, from a medicine perspective as well, I would guess. But
0: in order to do interventions, we, can't, we shouldn't be diagnosing them strictly as autistic. You've got to figure out what sensory processing problem do they have. In fact, fortunately, in this version of the DSM, they did mention sensory problems as being, you know, some of the potential symptoms. But if you want to find treatments for sensory problems, you've got to find subjects that all have the same sensory problem. Otherwise, you're mixing up apples and oranges and grapes, and you're not going to get very far if you do that.
1: And then you talk about some of these subsets of sensory problems, like Erlen syndrome, where um People are overstimulated by the actual white page, which is making people have difficulty reading. But it's not because they couldn't read. It's because of actual color contrast.
0: Well, and what happens in that situation, these are the individuals that hate fluorescent lights. You can see the flicker of fluorescent lights, and they'll see the print jiggle on the page. And I find in my livestock handling class, and the students have to do it, drawings for my class, you know, I find one out of fifty in my class has this problem because these students absolutely cannot draw a circle. You know, they just draw scribbles. And I ask them what they're seeing. They say they kind of see waves. And this can often be helped with colored glasses. You can find just the right pale colored glasses. And it's going to be different for each person. they got to pick out the pale glasses that will work for them. Like one person may be pale pinks or pale lavenders. Another thing that can help with reading is try printing the book on different pastel papers, like gray, tan, light blue, light yellow, light green, and try experimenting with different colored backgrounds on the computer. And some people like just the regular old white-gray Kindle because that reduces the contrast. Some people with their own syndrome just love the, the old-fashioned type of Kindle. That's, um, that's really good. But the person has to find out what for them, also, the old type TV screens are terrible, absolutely terrible. You want to be using tablets and laptops. Those are your good screens.
1: In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch, and we're talking today with Temple Grandin about her latest book, The Autistic Brain Thinking Across the Spectrum. Temple, what are your thoughts on the autism epidemic? Do you believe that the epidemic? is a real phenomenon, or is it an issue of us still struggling to define the, the terms?
0: I think on the milder end of the spectrum, it's just increased detection, it's increased diagnosis, because I, um, uh, I can remember people I went to school with, um, they're all gray hairs like me now, and uh, they, um, uh, they would be diagnosed in today's uh, school system. I think there is some severe autism that may have increased. You've got older parents now. Which, especially in dads, leads to copying more copying errors in the the genetics. uh, Some environmental contaminants, also uh, medications taken right at conception in the early um, first trimester. Another factor could be um, uh, deficiencies in B vitamins. There's interesting studies on folic acid and other things in B vitamins that are really crucial right around the time of conception and, and in the first trimester.
1: Have you seen the studies on on fever during pregnancy? I know that there's some association with schizophrenia and a little bit with autism around protracted fevers. If somebody gets the flu, it increases their risk uh, slightly of getting uh, schizophrenia and perhaps autism. That's
0: right, and that's mainly in the first trimester because that's when things are really, really delicate.
1: That's interesting. One one of the other things in the autistic brain that I, I really enjoyed was you take us through your own personal experience as a test subject, and you've, you've had your brain scanned for different experiments for many decades now. Can, can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on brain scanning and and what you've learned?
0: Well, uh, I learned some interesting things, learned why I can't do math. My left parietal area is full of cerebral spinal fluid. I've got asymmetry, and also um, found out why I'm um, might be a good visual thinker. Those circuits are enlarged. In fact, if you want to see the most fabulous scan, you can go and look up USA Today, Temple Grandin, and uh, they got one of the best scans in there. That's like my gigantic uh, visual search engine. See, what's happened is my language circuit for Speak What I See has reduced uh, bandwidth, and I had trouble getting my language out. And then I had all these branches that grew all around the whole brain, Which um, sort of gives me a visual search engine. Now, I want to emphasize not everybody with autism has this. Um, Other kinds of minds, like the mathematical thinker, and they're not going to have any, their parietal cortex is not going to be full of cerebral fluid. Um, What tends to happen in autism is to get uneven skills good at one thing, bad at something else, but you can have different skills that you can be uneven in. Now, the trait that seems to be universal, at least on the high end of the spectrum, are the social deficits, face recognition, uh, picking up subtle social cues. Those circuits tend to not be, uh, be, be normal.
1: So you, you have the quote, don't ignore deficits, accommodate them. Don't ignore strengths, exploit them. Can you talk further about some of the uh, strengths of, of the autistic brain? And I know that's not going to apply to all people with autism.
0: Well, not, you, know, you see, I'm a visual thinker, and so the work that I've done with livestock, actually the field called industrial design, where you, um, you know, it's the art side of designing things. I'm very good at that. Uh, then there's another kind of mind is the mathematical pattern thinker, and this person is going to be good at computer programming and engineering. And we need to have these two kinds of minds to work together. Because if you take a product like the iPad, for example, Steve Jobs, who I'm pretty sure was on the spec along with Einstein, no language until age three, um, uh, he was the artist, and he thought up the user interface. And then, and then the engineers have to make it work. Now, the thing that worries me with all this emphasis now on STEM courses and math is us visual thinkers like, like me are going to get screened out of the sciences, but you need me. Because the reason why the Fukushima nuclear power plant blew up was because they made a visual thinking mistake I could never make. I can't design a nuclear reactor. But there's no way, when I live next to the sea, I'm going to put super important emergency generators that run the emergency cooling pumps in a non waterproof basement.
1: That's a good point. When
0: the tsunami came in there, the generators drowned, and along with electric wiring and everything, and that's why four reactors burned up.
1: And when you talk about the collaboration around different thinking types, which obviously is also true for people who aren't autistic, you also have mentioned your collaboration with your co-writer on this book and how you have different thinking types that have made this book be what it is.
0: Well, that's right, because, I mean, Richard, um, you know, Richard's a you know, really gifted science writer, and uh, one thing he's done is organization, and i uh, he did some very heavy lifting on the genetics chapter, just in reviewing the literature, and then he had to like uh, like uh, we did long interviews and and uh, you know like kind of sort the stuff out you know then I'd go through and okay now what are the really important journal articles that show that there really is two kinds of visual thinking there is the art pictorial visual thinking like me, and then there's the visual spatial where is an object in space that's the addict's mind. And I had kind of figured out these different kinds of minds on my own, but then when I worked on the book, I found scientific articles and studies that show that these different kinds of minds actually exist. There's like five references on that we absolutely have to have in there.
1: That's great. And, and, and really the, the science of brain imaging and the differences in brains is in its infancy for the most part, wouldn't you say?
0: Well, there's uh, some great new technology now—high definition diffusion image, uh, high definition diffusion tensor imaging—that was um, developed by Walter Snyder at the University of Pittsburgh, and this can can um, dissect out the white uh, fiber cable bundles that connect up the different departments of the brain, and uh, this technology has got tremendous uh, potential. It's sort of like getting this new telescope that's just come out in the last two or three years, but now people have to learn how to use it. and the technology was originally paid for by the Defense Department for head injuries. and but the Defense department's not going to pay for autism research, you know now we got to do research to find out how to use the technology. But I think what's going to happen as you start to use it is that is that certain parts of autism are going to get divided up into subgroups.
1: Has there been any research on the plasticity of the brain of the um ability of the brain to change as we as we exploit our strengths and shore up our weaknesses?
0: Well, yeah, the brain definitely has got plasticity. I was just reading something the other day hippocampus um gets larger and kids that get math practice but kind of problem I got is the circuits. Some of the circuits I think are just not there. You know, you can't you know, you gotta have something there. Like my language. I couldn't get my language out because I probably only have about a fourth of the bandwidth I'd normally have to speak what I see circuit. But, you know, he worked hard on me on language therapy and and uh, I've got language, but you see there was still circuit there. It wasn't like missing.
1: It. Sure. And so over time, with your, you being a test subject, have you you've seen changes in, in your brain scans as you've become more no, of a public? No, I
0: haven't done, no, we haven't done enough brain scans to, to plot changes. We haven't even done it. No, no, I've not done that.
1: You talk a little bit about the 10,000-hour rule that's been made famous by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, tell us about the misinterpretation of the of the 10,000 and our rule when it comes... I
0: agree with practice, you know, on the whole thing where people are like best of the profession when they're 10 years into it. Yeah, that would be true for me with drawing and design, very definitely. I also agree with Malcolm Gladwell that in order to have a talent, you've got to have access to the art materials or access to, you know, the resources. But where I don't agree is innate ability does matter, and it especially matters on the more extreme ends of the spectrum. Uh, because Bill Gates and I had access to the exact same IBM teletype computer in 1968, state of the art, went into the big mainframe with the reels that spin around, and you typed on this teletype. And uh, I took the programming course. I couldn't do it. I had free time on this computer. I had all the instruction I would have wanted. I just could not do it. And Bill Gates was phenomenal at it. So we had access to the exact same computer and trying to take the programming course. Of course, it was just hopeless. The
1: the DSM-5 is coming out soon. And, it's uh, already out. It's already out. And, um, tell, tell us a little bit about your thoughts about where it's gone and whether it has any usefulness, really, when it comes to autism and the autism spectrum. Well,
0: the thing is is that they've you know, taken out, a lot of people are upset about taking out Asperger's because that's become like a, kind of a form of identity. You know, people go, uh, and and basically it changed the Asperger's to social communication disorder. So if you were to use the DSM-5 really strictly, there would be some people that would not be in the autism spectrum. And I think the reasoning behind this has to do with money and access to services. Uh, now, one good thing is they did put in there that sensory problems can be one of the symptoms. That actually was good. You now, see, the problem is is that it's behavioral it's behavioral profiles. You know, they try to change all the time, but there's a certain amount of opinion that goes into make behavioral profiles. You know, you've got science, but then you also have opinion. It, you know, what people need to realize is that they are behavioral profiles, and they're not accurate the same way a tuberculosis diagnosis is accurate. You do a lab test, they go, yes, you have tuberculosis. It's definite.
1: At the end, at the very end of the autistic brain, you, you talk about employment and you talk about the three um, thinking types or the three, three thinking subtypes uh, in autism and different employment possibilities for the three types. Can you expand a little bit about those?
0: Yeah, very definitely. The, the, the pictorial visual type of thinker like me would be good at industrial designing, graphic design, art, animation, architecture, photography. Anything, um, you know, has to do with making pictures um, probably would be good to do good on things like hardware design because that's where you have to, um, you have to, um, I'm sorry about this wagon going by. Oh, that's okay. Um, yeah, you have to um, What work strictly working with pictures. And then the mathematical mind, they're going to be good at things like computer programming, engineering, on um, ma- anything to do with mathematical stuff. And then the word thinker tends to be very good at detail, very good memory. In fact, all types of autism have extremely good memory. And uh, one place where um, word thinker would be really good would be specialty retail because, boy, they would know every little bit of merchandise.
1: In the employment section also, you you give some advice to um... People with autism who are entering the workforce, and a couple of the things, you, one of the things you say is, don't make excuses. Tell tell us what you mean by that.
0: Well, boss needs to re- you know, to be direct. You know, there's a scene in the HBO movie where, where the boss, my boss, slammed down a deodorant and said, "You stink. Use it." You got to be direct. If something wrong, you can't sort of say, "Well, you're too enthusiastic." When you talk to customers in the store, you need to demonstrate to them exactly how they. Should behave like you might say something like, "Well, watch how Susie interacts with customers, and then do it the way Susie does it." So you've got to give really clear instructions. You cannot be vague.
1: That's a good. You've that's a... Tell
0: them, and, and, and and they need to have um, they need to know what the what the project is. You know, one thing I like about designing things is okay, I got a deadline, and I know what the I'll handle the design, but I know the outcome of what the customer wants.
1: And how about some final thoughts for our listeners today? I'm sure we have some, some parents out there who who might have, have a child who just received an au- autism diagnosis, for instance.
0: Well, if it's a two or three-year-old child and you have no speech, don't wait. The worst thing you can do with a young kid like that is to do nothing. You've got to start working with that kid, interacting with them. Uh, you've got to work with them. Now you get on the more uh, less severe end of the spectrum, uh, develop strengths. Another thing is teaching work skills. I'm seeing a lot of problems where kids are going through college and then they don't want to work. because Every job, no matter how good it is, has got a certain amount of grunt work. And they need to, um, you know, kids need to learn that discipline of work. When I was 13, I'm, my mother got me a sewing job. And when I was um, 15, I was cleaning horse stalls. And I was doing carpentry work and painting signs and selling them. And in college, I had career-related internships you know, there's a there's a discipline of work. I was out at my aunt's ranch, and 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 um, you know, volunteer work does count. And let's look at you know, I know the paper routes are gone, but um, dog walking would be a good job for 12 year old. And you got to walk Mrs. Jones's dog every day. Working in a farmers market would be a great job for some of these kids on weekends. And they're going to have to be there even when it's raining and it's nasty. They're going to have to be there. Um, there's a discipline to having a job, and the younger kids will just have to set it up in the informal economy.
1: Well, Temple, it was really a fascinating read, The Autistic Brain. I, I, I found it interesting both on a narrative level and on a scientific level, and I appreciate you being on Health Watch today.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: We are talking today with Temple Grandin, the author of The Autistic Brain, Thinking Across the Spectrum, I'll be back again next week with the author of The Book of Woe, uh, who's going to talk about the the controversy around the latest psychiatric DSM-4-5 manual. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday Morning Radio Zine. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host.